Dear friends, it's been a while since I've done an audio version of the Sostek. My buddy Kiet, he has some nice like background jazz when he reads his, so I'm going to copy him and have a little Miles Davis quintet in the background. Um, title of this week's newsletter is Don't Measure Yourself with Someone Else's Ruler, Liberation from Vanity Metrics. It feels damn good to be home. After two weeks of work in Kenya, followed by a week of the winter flu, and then two weeks of adventure in Japan, I arrived home a deflated, disoriented mess. I returned two weeks ago, but only now does my second cup of coffee fill me with my usual morning optimism. The worst of the blustery, wet winter storms seems to be behind us, and warmer weather is tantalizingly close, like a week away. This month will bring out the best of the Bay Area. Impossibly green hills covered in orange poppies and yellow mustard framed by a deep blue sky and wisps of luminescent clouds. Do you remember Bliss? That default wallpaper of Windows XP, allegedly the most viewed photograph in history? It was taken nearby in 1996 on a film camera while the photographer was driving to visit his girlfriend in Sonoma. Everywhere you look these days in the Bay Area, it looks like Bliss. Next section, to create and consider creativity. Is there some kind of golden ratio of how much time we should spend each week creating versus considering the creations of others? Writing versus reading? Painting versus viewing paintings? Could we try to calculate the, that percentage based on, say, how many books are published each year compared to how many time people spend reading those books? Or how many newsletters are published on Substack every day compared to the total number of people of time that people spend reading them. I know that the more time I spend writing one of these things, the less time that you, my lovely and busy readers and listeners, seem to spend reading. And I don't think it's just me. Over three million books are published in the United States every year. And traditional publishers warn on their website that, quote, sales of traditionally published books are shockingly small. The average published printed book sells fewer than 300 print copies over its lifetime, and who knows how many of those are actually read. Most books are only purchased by people who already follow the author online. So, in other words, a book is basically just another format to disseminate, disseminate words to the same people that are probably already reading you online. Still, I'm envious of my published friends, though they tell me unanimously that it wasn't worth the effort. Writers spend years of sweat, blood, and exhaustion writing a book that few read and fewer remember. It's embarrassing to admit that I look at the stats. How many people open the newsletter? How many links did they click? Do I have new subscribers? Is my engagement rate going up or down? I aspire to not care. I'm even more embarrassed to admit how much time I spend writing. My book review of Hari Kunzu's novel, Red Pill, must have taken me around eight hours to finish. And the 27 people who clicked on that link spent an average of three minutes reading it. The stats tell me that the less time I spend writing, and frankly, the less of an effort I make, the more the people will read. So know when to stop could be one takeaway, and know why you write could be another. For the past few months, I've been working with a writing coach. Apparently, the way to make money from writing is to help other people write. She's great. Uh, every month, I send her one or two drafts, and she, send me she sends me back her edits. 
And we talk about how to make them better. But more than anything, we talk about why I write. And so I came up with a list, actually a few lists, of why do I write in my journal? Why do I write long emails to friends? Why in God's name do I still write on Twitter? And why do I write this newsletter? So here's the list. First, to spark meaningful conversations with my friends offline. Second, to stay observant about how the world is changing. Third, to build community by introducing my friends to each other. Fourth, to recognize and engage with other people's writing by drawing associations between their pieces and sharing my own reflections. And fifth, to integrate my identity, my interests and observations from what feels like an otherwise disjointed life. Right, I remind myself, I'm doing this to prompt meaningful conversations, to foster community, to stay curious. The vanity metrics collected by Substack about how many readers and how much time they spend reading don't really capture anything relevant to what I want to get out of this. And I'm getting a lot out of it. So to all of you who have started a conversation with me based on something you've read here or have shared a link with me or have introduced me to somebody, thank you. And if you haven't, this is a zone of guilt-free creativity. We have never had more time to be creative, which is nice, but perhaps also less time to consider each other's creativity. A friend of mine jokes that Substack's business model depends on people feeling guilty for not reading their friends' newsletters, except I'm pretty sure that she's not joking. I really hope that's not true for any of you. As I've come to care less about how many people read and more about the five goals listed above, I felt a liberating sense of calm and purpose. Maybe there's a parallel between writing and cooking. Sure, some people become super famous and rich because they are great cooks, but that doesn't mean that the purpose of cooking is to become rich and famous. Becoming a better cook makes life more interesting, even if just for a few people. There's a footnote here which says that, uh, I guess the obvious difference between cooking and writing is that everyone loves to eat, whereas few and fewer people seem to enjoy reading. Okay, next section. Um, rather than it being a useful tool this week, it's an intriguing tool. Group chat on AI with the app Wavelength. So I'm the default IT support person for most of my friends, family, and also strangers in coffee shops. And so I figured when I started out with this newsletter a while back, why not share a couple useful tools and tricks uh, with technology? I wanted to share tools that I find truly useful and not just intriguing. But then OpenAI released ChatGPT, and every week since, there has been new AI-based software to try out. So for the next few newsletters, I admit I am more inclined to share intriguing tools than useful ones. And this week, I want to share Wavelength, which my buddy Louis shared with me. It's kind of in between a messaging app like WhatsApp and a collection of threads like Slack. Uh, it actually fills the, the in-between space is really interesting. It's also the first messaging app that allows you to integrate ChatGPT as a participant in a group chat. So it can be like you and your buddy or you and 10 of your buddies or your colleagues and you get to have AI as one of the participants in the chat. I'm not entirely sure why you would want to do that, but it is intriguing. And honestly, when we went through a nine month strategy refresh at work last year and we had tons of things that we needed to look up, I wish that we were using this as our chat space where we could kind of use ChatGPT as our reference librarian, librarian to ask questions um, about the thousands of white papers that have been published about governance in East and West Africa and Mexico. 
So if you'd like to try it out, let me know um, in the screenshot that I included in the newsletter. Luis and I ask ChatGPT to settle a debate that has been recurring from our podcast. Next section is the future of email, and I can't describe it. You're just going to have to look at that one. And the last section is the future of Jay-Z, parentheses, we're all immortal now. Last week's newsletter, I shared the viral AI-produced images of Trump getting arrested and the Pope in a puffy jacket. Um, when you pay close attention to those images, it becomes apparent pretty quickly that they aren't real. I think a lot of the magic of AI so far depends on the fact that rarely do we actually pay close attention. But this video below that I've included in the newsletter of Jay-Z rapping is different. It's actually not Jay-Z rapping at all. It was made by a 44-year-old producer from France using AI software um, to create a voice model of Jay-Z rapping. And then his rap partner, uh, Jay Medeiros, wrote lyrics. And I ha I've listened to it like five times. For me, it sounds exactly like Jay-Z. It's the first time I've seen or heard anything produced by AI that I can hardly distinguish from the real thing, even after listening to it several times. So then Jay-Z's longtime producer, Young Guru, posted on Instagram um, that this is something that we need to really pay attention to. Uh, now, anyone can produce a Jay-Z track without having access to Jay-Z himself. What's kind of funny about the post that Young Guru put on Instagram is that he shares these thoughts with this like Lenza AI produced portrait of him where he looks 20 years younger than he actually is. So he's uh, apparently he's adopting some of this technology even while he's resistant to it. Last year, Amazon announced that Alexa could create a voice model for anyone with just a minute of recorded speech. So imagine with a single voicemail recording, someone can replicate your voice and then use that voice to impersonate you in all the ways you can imagine, including calling your mother or boss or recording a podcast episode of you that's not really you and all the other stuff. It will be interesting to see how copyright law evolves. Already, Hollywood production companies are suing AI companies that have been trained on their content while they are also adopting those same tools in order to cut costs in their own production. And James Earl Jones has licensed his Darth Vader Darth Vader voice uh, to be a AI replicated for future Star Wars films. I think that James Earl Jones is in his mid-90s now. We can only assume that future generations will, if they are interested, be able to have interactive conversations with our voice trained on all of the content that we've shared online. If our species survives long enough, will our AI replicas make a good impression on our great-great-great-grandchildren? That is a question for another newsletter. But not next week's newsletter. That will be about uh, more thoughts on depopulation, the effects of AI on jobs, and migration policy. And until then, I hope you have a most wonderful week.